you may go ahead. Thank you, Andrea. Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designated or designed to translate new knowledge or what is published in a recent JAMA article into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m., with the next call being on August 18th. The article that we will feature in that call is Incontinence in Older Women, with the lead author being Dr. Patricia Goody, and the uh, uh, published in the June 2nd, 2010 issue of JAMA. So please join us for that. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage you to do so as well. Today, our featured author is Dr. Ken Mukamal, and uh, he will be discussing his article, A 42-Year-Old Man Considering Whether to Drink Alcohol for His Health, which appeared in the May 26, 2010 uh, issue of JAMA. Welcome, Dr. Mukamal. Thanks. Uh, as a moderator, um, let's see, well, let me talk about Dr. Mukamal first. He is a primary care internist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He also directs the research curriculum for the BIDMC Department of Medicine Residency Program and serves as a visiting scientist in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, so um, uh, well-versed in issues of uh, alcohol and other preventive measures uh, and lifestyle and behavioral issues that contribute to health. As moderator, it's my call to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Mukamal's research, in this case, his review article, with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. So we want to hear directly from you and have an opportunity for you to speak with the author. Uh, your participation in these calls is important both to um, give us your experience in this regard and to ask questions. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Mukamal will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings or his review article, and then I'll take a, just a few more minutes to draw out some implications for real-world practices, and then we'll move on to your questions and, uh, and comments. Um, as noted, there may be um, uh, uh, people, uh, individuals from the press on the call uh, on a background basis only. One other note, this call, like others, is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JEMA websites as podcasts or streaming audios. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available uh, on those sites. So let's get started. Once again, let me introduce Dr. Ken Mukamal, who will describe uh, his article. Ken? Oh, thanks, Chuck. Um, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, uh, uh, as noted, this was a review article. It summarized um, a fair bit of both uh, of work that we've done and work that uh, others have done as well. So by no means is, um, is even the majority of this um, work that I've personally done, although um, certainly some of it is. Um, the particular uh, piece that we're discussing uh, was posed to me as a clinical question uh, related, uh, as it turns out, to a uh, patient who actually uh, is in our practice. Um, in this case, uh, it was a 42-year-old gentleman uh, who was, uh, frankly, in relatively good health um, uh, and 
paying, I think, um, reasonably good attention to his uh, lifestyle in an effort to prevent uh, cardiovascular and other diseases. Um, he and his doctor had discussed um, this idea that maybe a little bit of red wine would be good for him, and so he had been doing so. Uh, and then he got a uh, sort of differing opinion from uh, a neurologist who said, uh, who indicated that there might be risk of uh, brain atrophy even from light drinking, and so maybe he ought to reconsider that. And so the question was sort of put to me about what the evidence is suggesting that a little bit of wine or, or other uh, forms of alcohol might be good for people, um, what the harms might be, um, and uh, we, some reasonable way that primary care uh, internists like myself might um, might think about the, the potential risks and benefits uh, and the balance they're in. Um, the, uh, to summarize a little bit about what uh, we talked about um, in the article, I think that the first thing to think about um, when discussing alcohol in this context is to think about literally how do people drink? Because uh, uh, the patterns with which people drink are uh, in some respects quite stereotypical across the lifespan um, and important to understand if we're going to think about um, considering alcohol as part of, uh, in, in this case, part of one's diet. Um, in particular, uh, alcohol consumption obviously classically uh, or maybe ideally starts around age 21, although in reality it starts people's teens and uh, increases uh, dramatically right after the start of uh, or initiation of drinking. Um, unfortunately, nearly all of that uh, alcohol intake occurs in binges, um, such that um, uh, there's an extraordinary prevalence of binge drinking amongst all young adults and uh, virtually uh, all um, young adult drinkers, and that declines steadily um, as individuals get older. Um, uh, so to put, di put that differently, if we're thinking about uh, recommendations about alcohol consumption, for young adults, the, the, uh, the dominant problem by far is binge drinking, and really any recommendation to drink is, uh, might be viewed as an invitation to binge drink. Um, the, um, as people get older and are able to moderate their drinking uh, or appear to moderate their drinking, um, uh, I think more interesting questions come up about how to balance, again, sort of potential risks and benefits. Another issue related to that is to keep in mind that uh, current recommendations regarding alcohol consumption don't differentiate between beverages, but do differentiate between men and women. And uh, standard recommendations these days would be uh, a limit of two drinks per drinking day for men and one uh, drink per drinking day for non-pregnant women. Um, the amount of alcohol in a given uh, serving size of different alcoholic beverages tends to be about the same, somewhere in the range of about 11 to 15 grams. And that's part of the reason that there's no difference between beverages and, and current drinking recommendations, uh, say from the USDA or from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Um, uh, I think the next, the, the, the first big step in trying to think about what evidence do we have about the health effects of alcohol is um, to, to sort of recognize where does the data that we have come from. And I think a simple way to, to keep this in mind is to recognize that there are, in fact, no long-term randomized trials of alcohol consumption. We can discuss that a bit further later on. Um, but there are a fair number of short-term randomized trials of alcohol consumption, uh, feeding studies, as it were, um, and really an enormous body of observational evidence. Um, but we don't have just observational evidence. We do have uh, uh, these short-term trials. And I think the combination uh, of the two provides a, a more 
important and interesting story than either one alone. Um, uh, to think about the uh, health effects of, uh, of even moderate drinking um, in the short-term trials, I think we can kind of group those into a few large categories, um, uh, and particularly thinking about, um, in this case, uh, cardiovascular risk factors. The first and by far the strongest is HDL cholesterol. So alcohol consumption very consistently raises levels of HDL cholesterol in, uh, in clinical trials. And in fact, it does so with a potency that's probably greater than um, any currently approved pharmaceutical agent. Um, it's uh, uh, roughly a linear dose response and probably um, is linear uh, uh, until a relatively large amount of alcohol, say somewhere in the range of about five uh, drinks for men and three drinks for women, something in that range. So it's, uh, it's all the way through the moderate range of alcohol consumption. There's a dose response positive association between alcohol intake and HDL cholesterol. Now, we commonly think of that as being, um, to some degree, balanced or, or um, contradicted by uh, an effective alcohol consumption on triglycerides. Now, it's interesting that alcohol consumption appears to raise triglycerides, particularly at high doses, um, because most of the things that raise HDL uh, typically lower triglycerides and vice versa. Um, uh, and we can potentially speculate about that down the road as well. Um, interestingly, in the clinical studies, the clinical trials, the, that effect of triglycerides is mostly restricted to men and mostly restricted to studies of beer, which also has additional carbohydrate. So I think that's actually, there may be a sex-specific effect there that still needs to be teased out. It's pretty clear, though, that heavy drinking does lead to higher triglycerides. Um, three other things that I think are worth keeping in mind from these feeding studies, three other effects of alcohol. Um, one is uh, a, consistently, a consistently strong association of alcohol intake with lower fibrinogen levels, uh, fibrinogen being an acute phase reactant and obviously part of uh, the uh, coagulation cascade. So we might anticipate that lower levels of fibrinogen would uh, confer an antithrombotic effect uh, and uh, or perhaps an anti-inflammatory effect. Um, that's, a, again, one of the uh, strongest and most consistent associations seen. Um, given the fact that fibrinogen is associated with higher risk, high, uh, fibrinogen levels are associated with a higher risk of heart disease, uh, this, again, fits with the idea that um, raising HDL, lowering fibrinogen, might confer lower risk. So we're seeing some, some potential mechanisms uh, that might explain uh, the observational studies we'll discuss in a moment. And finally, uh, two other kind of more interesting and novel ones. Uh, one is adiponectin. Uh, adiponectin is a, a fat cell hormone, an adipokine, um, which is very strongly associated with better insulin sensitivity, um, both in animals and in humans. And alcohol consumption is, to date, the nutritional factor most strongly associated with levels. So that, again, throughout the range of moderate drinking uh, in clinical trials, alcohol consumption raises adiponectin levels. And indeed, it raises the most active kind of adiponectin, which is the high molecular weight form. Lastly, alcohol consumption does raise um, not all sex steroid hormones, but seems relatively consistently to raise levels of estrone and DHEA sulfate. Um, those are two endogenous sex steroid hormones. And uh, there's, I think, interesting reason to think that those are not only both real, because they've been seen in clinical trials, but may mediate some of the uh, some of the effects we'll see in observational studies. So I think those are kind of the the panel of of I think pretty consistently seen effects in clinical trials, and they help to give us some landscape with which to understand the observational studies. 
Um, now, um, before we move on to those, I should point out that there are only two sort of longer-term uh, clinical trials out there, one that's uh, as long as a year and one that's as long as three months in parallel design. Those are the longest trials we have out there. Interestingly, both were conducted uh, in diabetic individuals, um, and uh, in uh, the shorter one, the three-month study, alcohol consumption lowered fasting glucose levels amongst the diabetics. The second study uh, performed over a year amongst diabetic uh, individuals who had survived a recent MI. Um, alcohol consumption, uh, or actually specifically advice to drink red wine every day, not only improved uh, insulin sensitivity, which is what you'd expect from the adiponectin effect, um, but also interestingly and surprisingly improved myocardial performance with an improved ejection fraction um, and reduced LV mass. Um, so that was a little bit surprising, but um, those are the kind of the only longer-term trials out there. Now, to think about the observational studies uh, a bit, um, I think we can kind of, may, it may be easiest to lump those by sort of the disease under study. And by far, uh, certainly the most uh, uh, interesting to many uh, individuals are, is the association of alcohol consumption with coronary heart disease. Um, that relationship has been known um, for at least uh, 25 or 30 years in observational studies and was sort of anecdotally noted uh, as long as 100 years ago in pathology studies in which uh, individuals who are heavy drinkers seem to have less atherosclerosis than you might have anticipated. Um, what we have found and, and studies really from around the world have found is that on average individuals who drink about a drink a day have about a 20 to 30 percent lower risk of heart disease than individuals who don't drink at all. Um, whether or not there's higher risk with really heavy drinking, at least for coronary heart disease, is a little bit unclear. There's clearly are, are, are many risks associated with heavy drinking. Whether coronary heart disease per se is one of those is still uh, something of a matter of debate. Um, the association is pretty similar amongst both and, uh, men and women, although um, in men, the lowest risk seems to be kind of in the one to two drinks per day, and in women, lowest risk seems to be about a half to one drink per day. Uh, which is pretty consistent with current recommendations for uh, limits to drinking. I should note that this is pretty uh, um, uh, this is somewhat restricted to coronary heart disease, and for stroke, the relationship is actually not at all quite so clear. Certainly, heavy drinking leads to a higher risk of stroke, but the data linking uh, moderate drinking with lower risk of stroke is is not as strong, and uh, probably not as uh, probably not as much of a uh, uh, risk reduction. Um, in terms of patterns, what we've seen is that binge drinking, in some respects, seems to eliminate the benefits of moderate drinking. And in contrast, what seems to be most important is really the frequency with which one drinks. So that small amounts of alcohol sort of distributed um, over the course of a week seem to confer the lowest risk of heart disease. And uh, large amounts of drinking consumed all at once don't seem to lower risk much at all. Um, we have not seen uh, strong differences between beverages, interestingly. Um, so there, there doesn't seem to be anything special about red wine, at least for heart disease. Um, that may relate to the fact that all alcoholic beverages are equal in terms of raising HDL cholesterol. So we might not anticipate that they would differ in terms of their effects on, uh, on coronary heart disease. If there are benefits of red wine, uh, and there may be, uh, they may require either really high doses that don't, people don't get in standard drinking levels, uh, or it, it may be for different diseases other than coronary heart disease. Um, so what, what are the, uh, the other associations that alcohol consumption has? Well, 
uh, alcohol consumption has been associated with a lower risk of diabetes, but similar to its effect on coronary heart disease, and again, kind of consistent with this idea that alcohol raises adiponectin levels. Alcohol consumption probably does not uh, cause chronic liver disease amongst uh, people with uh, normal livers, as it were, but there's, uh, I think, very persuasive evidence that it does raise risk in people who have chronic liver disease from, say, chronic hepatitis. Um, perhaps the strongest association from a cancer standpoint of moderate drinking is with breast cancer, and that's actually quite strong and been seen uh, across a variety of studies. It seems to be most strong for estrogen, positive, estrogen receptor positive tumors, which would fit this idea that alcohol consumption is raising certain levels of sex steroid hormones. There's also associations of alcohol consumption with cancers of the larynx and esophagus. Um, those are not as common of cancers. Um, and it's not quite so clear that how much the risk is increased just with moderate drinking, but it seems to be. Um, finally, um, to say that there's um, you know kind of complicated associations of alcohol consumption with trauma. Um, clearly, in younger and middle-aged adults, injury is a huge problem related to alcohol consumption. And even moderate amounts of drinking uh, raise blood alcohol levels to a degree to which people might be might not perform as well, for example, on simulated driving tests. Um, so there's, I think, great reason to be concerned about that you know, for that proportion of the population in whom injuries constitute a major threat to morbidity and mortality. In contrast, much as we might expect because alcohol consumption raises sex steroid hormone levels, it's been associated with higher bone density. And so paradoxically, in older adults, the relationship, say, of alcohol consumption with hip fracture appears to be kind of U-shaped, where there might be some benefit at moderate amounts, but uh, higher risk with heavier amounts that lead to greater numbers of falls. So that's kind of where the data is. Uh, let me end by saying that um, given where that data is, um, it's, uh, I'm not sure that we would be thinking about alcohol consumption as sort of a drug to be taking, but alcohol isn't uh, a pharmaceutical. It's a macronutrient. It's part of people's diets. And the degree to which there's evidence that alcohol consumption might, say, lower risk of heart disease is actually pretty strong as nutrients go. It's certainly as strong, for example, as evidence relating trans fats to higher risk. Um, so the, the cumulative evidence is actually quite strong. Does that mean we should start telling people to drink? Well, certainly not everybody. We ought to probably be telling everybody not to binge drink and be routinely uh, assessing for that. Um, we ought to be telling people not to smoke because drinkers tend to smoke and smokers tend to drink. Um, in many cases, I think it's going to be hard to tell people to drink because there are things that we could ask them to do that might benefit more diseases, for example, exercise or lose weight. But at the end of the day, in people who have demonstrated they can drink safely and who are doing those other things, seems to me at least that it's a reasonable decision for individuals to consider including alcohol as part of their diet um, if they're doing these other things. Um, so, Chuck, I think I'll stop there and be happy to uh, try to uh, engage in a little discussion about this. Great. Fantastic. Ken, thank you very much. That was a, a really wonderfully detailed uh, review of the data and of the health benefits of alcohol. I am as well looking forward to the conversation here. Being from Oregon, which is really one of the microbrew epicenters of the country and um, a state that is producing some spectacular wines of all varieties, this is a topic that's very interesting to me and I think of my colleagues here, so I'm interested in, in uh, having some conversation about this. What I, what I think you said at the very end is a really important thing that uh, will be good to have some conversation about. 
um, in terms of sort of basic counseling of patients around exercise, weight management, and dietary counseling with alcohol really being, I think, a part of that dietary counseling. Um, you know, we do tend to worry a lot that by, by giving people the advice of having a drink a day, we're going to turn them into alcoholics. Uh, and I suspect that's not the case. Uh, even for myself, who would like to have a drink a day, I, um, you know, one drink will tend, tend to put me to sleep. Uh, and so, and I suspect there's not an inconsequential number of people like me. It's, I, I really wonder how much of a risk it is in our counseling that we will uh, actually promote um, alcohol habits that are unhealthy for people who don't already have them. And it's, it is, does seem to be a concern that many clinicians have. Would you speak to that piece? Um, you know, I agree entirely, Chuck. I think that's one of the, it's in many respects, sort of an unanswerable question. I can say that in those few studies that have done sort of longer term kind of advice, um, but again, these are restricted basically to about a year. Um, they don't uh, at least report evidence that people become uh, excessive drinkers, but, um, you know, it's hard to know how many, uh, it's hard to know, you know, sort of uh, what the r absolute risk might be and whether they just need to study enough uh, people or enough different types of people to, to begin to see that. Um, my own feeling, and it's I, I say this admitting that I don't have direct data one way or the other, is that frankly we probably would not uh, induce a lot of uh, alcoholism, as it were, um, by recommending it, at least if we restricted our recommendations to people who, um, who don't have a personal history of alcoholism and have demonstrated that they can drink safely. Um, the um, the sort of um, the limited um, sort of anecdote that I have in this regard is really just that you know the alcohol industry is one of the most successful in America, and um, and frankly sort of promotes you know most of the time rather reckless drinking pretty extensively. Um, if they haven't succeeded in getting somebody to become an alcoholic already. I rather wonder whether the advice that we give would succeed in doing so. I I I rather doubt it. Um, information that says that said, here's what I'd like you know to consider doing. If you're going to drink and it's reasonable to consider it, do it, but never drink more than two drinks in a day. Um, I again I I sort of doubt that we'll convert anybody to an alcoholic simply on that basis alone. <laughs> Good. Well, now that you've let me off the hook, I can openly invite people to come to Oregon to partake in the uh, the wonders of our land and uh, feel good about that. Uh, so let's, uh, Andrea, let's turn it over to you and you can give people instructions as to how to get in the queue for either comments or questions and we look forward to them. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please do so by pressing the star key followed by the digit one on your touchtone telephone. If you're using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, that's star one. We'll hear first from Janet Williams with American Medical Association. Uh, yes, thank you so much for um, this opportunity today, and I was really interested in this topic. Here at the AMA, I'm in prevention and healthy lifestyles, and I also worked on a Robert Wood Johnson grant reducing underage drinking and college binge drinking. So I sort of have a comment and I have a question, so I'll lump it all together and then uh, let you decide how and when you want to answer which one. So the, the one thing is a lot of the positive association studies, and if you can talk about this, appear to have been done on white males or women over 65. 
and uh, I have a lot of friends in their in their 40s and 30s who you know are 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 talking about the positive benefits of alcohol. So I wish you'd uh, address that. The other concern is that when we talk about um, one drink a day or half a you know half a drink a day is that what we found in, in our work, and we work on policy as well as uh, price and promotion and the industry, is that despite nobody really knows what a drink is. And so if you look, it's like eight ounces, which is actually not what a beer can is. And in some cases, a beer, you know, a beer in a restaurant or a bar is two drinks. And so we sort of have the concern, and we need, you know, we have a Healthier Life Steps toolkit here at the AMA that talks about how do you talk to your patients about drinking, diet, and exercise? And I think that's one concern is really getting the public and even the responsible drinkers, and I use that a little tongue-in-cheek, what is a drink? And that's where I really want to talk about when you're saying, well, if, if physicians counsel their patients uh, and the industry hasn't done it yet, we're not likely to make them alcoholics. And I think that in terms of the work that we've been doing here in our division, it's not really about the alcoholics so much as it is about the problem drinkers. And problem drinking is, and high-risk drinking isn't necessarily an alcoholic. And and that's our problem when we talk with physicians is they think, well, I'm just screening for alcoholism. And we really want to be talking more about problem drinking and high-risk drinking. <clears throat> so I, I know I've thrown a lot at you, but I'd really be curious to hear what you have to say on all of it. Sure, Thank really you. good, really good comments. Hang, hang on the line. We might uh, might engage in the conversation here. Okay. Ben. Um, okay, so let me make sure. I, well, let me start from the top, and then if I miss anything, uh, let me come back. So, or please bring me back. Um, okay. So the the first um, issue would be sort of asking, you know, how are these benefits and risks distributed across the population? To to change the question a little bit, um, and uh, um, it is certainly true that it, there is virtually no way to imagine that there's any benefit to drinking uh, amongst 20 and 30-year-olds. And frankly, there's probably no way to benefit, imagine a benefit of drinking in um, even 40-year-old women um, in whom there's still some tangible risk of breast cancer, which would be increased by moderate drinking, um, but actually quite a low risk of, uh, uh, of coronary heart disease. Um, so I think at the end of the day, we're very much exclusively talking about diseases which um, might be considered to start, say, in the 40s amongst men and among, uh, in the, say, 50s amongst women, but certainly not before that. Um, the, uh, um, so there's a, that's an important um, so sort of you, caveat from, to all that. From that, you might, you might tie that recommendation as an example into when you start counseling them to take an aspirin a day. Indeed, um, for, you know, male is forty to fifty, and for a female is postmenopausal, probably about sixty-five. I, mean, I think there's a, a fair number of things we might consider, you know, sort of around that age. Right. Um, right. You know, we basically, I think that's around the age we start shifting into thinking about kind of chronic disease mm-hmm. as opposed to acute disease. Um, and alcohol, even in moderation, certainly at more than moderation, and when I use moderation here, I'm talking about even individual drinking episodes. Um, is associated with violence, associated with a, uh, a variety of, of, uh, of say, um, uh, unsafe sexual behaviors and things that we would not want to encourage. And so, it's. I think we should. It, it, we can take off the top the idea that anybody who's 20 or 30 years old should be suggesting that they're drinking for their health, because they're not. Um, 
and so that's clear. Now, there's a you asked a, a slightly uh, it was embedded another question in that, which was, are these risks seen in different types of populations? Um, because you imply that the studies were done primarily in white men and older women. And on average, that's probably true, but it's not exclusively true. And it's worth thinking a little bit about those. I can say that, for example, we see the same sorts of effects in Asians. Um, so it's not certainly just in, in, uh, in white men and women. Um, there's, interesting, uh, there's an interesting question still about um, associations in African-Americans. Um, African-Americans uh, don't drink as much as, as whites do, don't drink as frequently as whites do. Um, uh, and I think the data have been somewhat mixed in this regard. I can say that we recently looked at this um, in uh, a series of compilations of the National Health Interview Survey. So these were representative samples of African-American individuals. And um, we saw a somewhat um, less pronounced, but still a significant association of, uh, of, mo of again, moderate drinking with lower cardiovascular mortality, even in African Americans. Um, so I don't. It's while it is true that most of the data have come from those populations, it's certainly not exclusively so. Um, but I, there are some differences, for example, in m genetic metabolism of alcohol in African populations that aren't seen in in white populations. And so there's some reason I think still to to expect that maybe there are differences and um, and to study those further. Um, the second, if I, um, uh, to, to address the second piece, which is sort of trying to tease out this business about problem drinking, um, uh, I don't at all disagree that you know, we ought to be concerned about problem drinking. I don't feel as if a recommendation, I actually think that this sort of conversation about moderate drinking, frankly, would ha you know, has the potential at least to help both problem drinking and, uh, and to, you know, potential, you know, if there's a benefit, to, to identify those people in whom there's a benefit for drinking. Or put differently, I think right now most of us um, don't talk about, about moderate drinking because we sort of screen for alcoholism, and then there's so much else to do in a visit, um, again, speaking for myself, that we never get to this conversation about what sort of what the right amount of drinking might be or, uh, or other things. I screen, I screen everybody with a standard question, which the NIAAA currently recommends, um, essentially about binge drinking episodes or uh, what might be viewed as problem drinking. Um, and so I do that routinely, but if I get a no to that, you know, I don't frankly feel like I always have the time to try to talk more about this. And I actually wonder if having, the, having a, a more detailed conversation, um, asking the question, how much do you drink and is that the right amount to drink? How do you drink it? If that led some people to end up drinking a little bit every day, that would be all right, but I suspect that might also help some people recognize that there's risks to how they're drinking um, now. As I indicated, um, what we've seen, uh, at least in a population of, uh, of, of people with heart disease, was that although moderate drinking, again, the sort of vaguely defined way, was associated with lower risk of, of death, actually, of all-cause mortality, the interesting thing was that episodes of binge drinking, and these were not necessarily alcoholics, these, and, and our definition of binge drinking was a very conservative, um, uh, completely eliminated that benefit. So if we can convey that kind of message, if you're going to get any benefit out of this, you're going to get it from drinking a small amount, potentially even half of a drink every day or two, and, and there's no benefit of going beyond that. Um, I think 
frankly, we'd have better conversations with patients in, in most cases. Um, the last thing you talked about was a little bit about kind of what is a drink. Um, interestingly, um, and we hear that, you know, uh, people in the sort of alcohol field talk about this issue a lot. It's interesting because uh, from the nutritional side, alcohol consumption is actually one of the easiest things to ask people about. Um, if you ask people, you know, how much broccoli do you eat, you're going to get answers that probably have no relationship to how much broccoli they really do eat or potatoes or other things. But people can generally remember when they when they last drank and generally how many drinks they have. So I think there's problems in identifying exactly how much people are actually drinking, but those are rather small problems compared to other things, um, at least in nutrition. Um, with that being said, I have, a, I have to agree that I found patients to have remarkably different ideas about what a drink constitutes. Um, it's not at all surprising for me to talk to people about drinking and then for them to talk about uh, they're drinking exclusively as spirits and then to throw in at the end, but you're not counting beer, are you? Um, and so that kind of thing, I think, is, uh, again, you know, I think having deeper conversations with individuals will only improve our ability to counsel them. Fantastic. Good conversation. Um, and uh, uh, Janet, anything else on that? No, I think that, that, that uh, I, I like certainly, I think turning it around and really talking about how much you drink, but you know, how, you know, how what are you, you know, how are you drinking? What you're drinking, I think certainly would would get at um, a better picture and get away from. Uh, you're right. The ep the episodes of binge drinking because I, I we do see a lot with people you know that we worked with on our alcohol policy programs that you know from the, the standpoint, well, you know, I I don't drink every day, I don't binge every day, but it's it's I think that's something that we might want to consider as we adapt our our toolkit for physicians is really saying, but, you know, if you're binging at all, that health benefit you keep thinking you're getting, you're most likely not, not getting. And also, it's, it's also really confusing that if you've got somebody who has cardiovascular disease and they're on a statin, so their triglyceride is being controlled, but they also might not be drinking in moderate amounts, does the statin still keep the triglyceride down, even though if they weren't on one at all, the triglyceride would probably be going up? So, you know, are they falsely thinking they're getting a benefit? Um, I, it's difficult to speak to the triglyceride issue specifically. I should note that statins are mixed in their ability to lower right, triglycerides. Right. Um, uh, and frankly, alcohol consumption does in even in feeding studies, doesn't clearly raise, uh, at least non-beer alcohol consumption, doesn't clearly raise triglycerides um, at, at uh, modest amounts, say a drink a day. Um, the evidence in some respects that alcohol consumption lowers uh, or improves prognosis in people with established heart disease is, um, is relatively strong. There's now a whole series of studies that have looked at this. There's a recent meta-analysis that addressed it as well, and, and the studies are relatively consistent. One important limitation of all of those, however, and I think you've touched on an important point, is that virtually none of those were conducted in an era of, of widespread statin use. And um, it is not at all clear that, you know, how alcohol will influence prognosis in that situation. Um, you might anticipate it would still improve risk because statins are not great at raising HDL, um, and they don't have an antithrombotic effect, and at least those aspects of alcohol consumption might be anticipated to be beneficial. Um, on the other hand, we may have you know kind of maxed out our 
benefits in many of these things. You know, if between aspirin and Plavix and uh, or clopidogrel and and uh, and statins, there may not be a lot of extra room. And um, I think that's going to be an interesting area going forward. In what limited data we've looked at in this regard, um, uh, doing some work back, uh, from the post-cabbage trial, um, which was a trial of statins, we saw um, uh, non-significant um, but modest effects of alcohol consumption of uh, lowering um, progression of atherosclerosis. Um, uh, so sort of in the direction you'd anticipate, it wasn't significant um, in part because of the potentially because of the numbers. Um, it was similar in people on and off statins, but again, um, wasn't significant, even though it was sort of in the direction we would have anticipated, with about the magnitude we would have anticipated it. So I think that's an open question, and, and one of the really interesting things we're bringing, I think we'll have to look at in the next you know, five to ten years. Great. Thank you, uh, Janet. Uh, Andrea? Yes, we'll hear next from Samuel Seward with Columbia University. Hi, thank you. I just had a quick question wondering about the origins of the belief in red wine being the particular type of alcohol that was beneficial. Uh, well, I suppose I can give a glib answer and suggest that uh, the, the red wine industry has been successful in accomplishing their aims. Um, I'm not entirely sure that's, that's fair. Um, some of this has to do with the fact that some of the first studies that kind of addressed this were uh, conducted indeed in France and in Italy. And so those are countries in which red wine is the dominant beverage. Put differently, if we think that, that the frequency with which alcohol consumption, uh, with which alcohol is consumed, is the most important determinant of lower risk, then we would anticipate that that beverage, which is consumed frequently in a given population, would be the one associated with lower risk. If people tend to drink red wine frequently, then red wine will be associated with lower risk. Um, uh, interestingly, when we've looked at this in a population of U.S. men, um, red wine, which was the beverage they consumed least, frequent, least frequently, also was least strongly associated with lower risk. And beer and spirits were most strongly associated with lower risk. Um, so we really haven't seen much at all to suggest that that, um, that there's something special about red wine. And I go further and say that there's, there's now a number of studies suggesting that, that much like we should be concerned about confounding, about the idea that um, the, benefit, the apparent benefits of, of alcohol relate to the fact that drinkers differ from non-drinkers. Um, I think the evidence is even stronger that red wine, or at least wine drinkers, differ from non-wine drinkers. Um, there's a, a very elegant study conducted in uh, Denmark that uh, Morten Gronbach, who's uh, the head of the Alcohol Institute there, uh, uh, conducted. And uh, basically all they did was look at uh, supermarket receipts. And in, in Denmark, uh, wine and, and beer are sold uh, in the supermarket, although spirits are not. And they simply asked the question, what did you buy when you bought wine or when you bought beer? And not surprisingly to many of you, I suspect, um, when, you, when you bought wine, you were more likely to have bought olives and veal, and when you bought beer, you were most likely to have bought uh, chips. Um, and when you bought uh, both, you were somewhere in between. So we might anticipate, in fact, that that those studies which have suggested wine might be particularly good are, are also most likely to be confounded. Um, there are uh, an enormous number, you know, literally hundreds of interesting chemicals in red wine, which come either from the stems or from the skins of, of wine. 
I suspect that many of those will turn out to be um, of interesting biological importance. Uh, the most famous is resveratrol, res, which um, has already been, uh, it's already there's uh, sort of commercial interest in, in packaging into little pills. But keep in mind that the amount of resveratrol you're getting in those pills is equivalent to liters and liters and liters of wine. And so it's not really um, possible to get that amount from drinking red wine. So while there may be interesting pieces to it, um, uh, to those chemicals, I don't think at the end of the day they're likely to explain a lot of the benefit um, that we see, in, at least in observational studies. Let me end, though, by saying that um, the few trial, again, the few longer-term trials that we have have specifically used um, red or white wine. And so uh, in some respects, the evidence that is, is strongest that wine is beneficial um, we don't really have strong evidence that wine is more beneficial than anything else. Great. Fascinating stuff, particularly the confounding. Uh, really interesting connections there. Uh, and thank you for the question. Uh, Andrea? At this time, it looks like there are no further phone questions. However, as a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, that's star wine. That always leaves me an opportunity to ask some questions. So, uh, Ken, one of the things I'm pulling out is our... A relative um, underdevelopment, perhaps, of our alcohol history taking in risk risk stratification uh, early on to be able to tell you know which individuals either have a family history of alcoholism and therefore absolutely shouldn't be drinking or are at risk, and those many, perhaps majority, who don't or won't and and some, in some strange way, society makes them paranoid about drinking. Um, and uh, it seems to me, as in, our, in our history taking and our recording and our charts, we could do a better job of that. Um, you know, I think you're absolutely right, Chuck. Um, this is something I've uh, spoken at some length about with uh, with Barbara Turner, who's um, uh, former. Uh, president of the Society of General Internal Medicine and has thought a lot about these sorts of issues. And um, one of the things that, that I note, even just in sort of my precepting, say, with our residents is that um, that they're very consistent about asking or sort of a question about, A, how much do you drink? And they're moderately but not entirely um, consistent about asking uh, classic uh, brief screening instrument questions, so things like the cage. Um, but the problem with those is that um, CAGE is really assessing for uh, alcohol misuse disorders. And uh, just how much do you drink, people will, A, average it, and B, will underestimate it. And so we're, we're not getting a great um, number there either. And uh, asking questions about, in particular, just simple questions about binge drinking. You know, so how often do you have four or five drinks in a day? Um, or more, um, you know, a very simple sort of question, and I, I find unbelievably telling. And I think, um, to some degree, that if we were, um, that if we we viewed alcohol consumption as potentially something we would be recommending, that we probably would be more uh, attentive to the both indications and contraindications related to alcohol consumption. Um, you know, we might. Um, we might go and do use uh, 
the uh, breast cancer screening algorithms that exist to try to, under, to under, uh, understand for an individual woman, gee, what is your risk of breast cancer and how much is that going to go up if you, if you begin moderate drinking? Um, uh, we might take, as you know, better histories of, of families and identify people at risk because of uh, strong family histories of alcoholism. Um, so for all of those reasons, I think um, the conversation, we could certainly do a better job with the conversations um, if we recognized that even moderate, that A, even moderate drinking has health effects. And so trying to understand exactly how much people are drinking probably matters. And two, that moder even moderate drinkers do a lot of binge drinking. Um, most of the binge drinking episodes cumulatively in the United States occur amongst moderate drinkers. And so trying to get a handle on that and the risks associated with that becomes really important. And I think we'd be more apt to do it if we were actually entertaining the idea that, gee, maybe there's some people who ought to be adding a small amount of alcohol to their diet. Again, not everybody and not even most people necessarily, but there, I think it's not unreasonable to think that there are some people um, who would fit that. Right. Um, I was going to ask about pregnancy, but one of the things you've already addressed is that uh, from a health or prevention perspective in women in particular, we're really talking about, you know, once you get the benefits really going to be achieved to at least benefit, uh, um, weighing the benefit against the potential harm of increased risk of breast cancer from the estrogens, uh, the recommendation is really going to sort of um, start when a woman's, say, 60-ish or something along those lines. So pregnancy, you know, I think, again, the reason I ask about pregnancy is because I think we've made people very, I think we've made women very paranoid about having any alcohol at all during pregnancy, which really is not consistent with the data. Uh, and uh, although, again, uh, to ask that question now doesn't make a whole lot of sense, perhaps, because the preventive effects you would, re you would recommend they start alcohol if they're going to take it from a health perspective when they're later in life. Uh, there's, you know, very interesting conversation to be had about alcohol and pregnancy for sure. And this is actually going on right now in Britain where there's an active movement afoot to change the recommendation somewhat. Because as you know, the, the, um, the evidence that any drinking uh, relates to uh, fetal harm, in, however that's defined, um, is very limited um, and at best inconsistent. Um, and I, I think probably better said for the most part null. Um, however, um, there's certainly no reason to drink um, uh, when one is pregnant, and either for the fetus or for the mother. So, um, so it's not at least for me. I think it's the 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 current message that's out there, which is don't drink at all, is relatively easy to give and and sort of convenient. Um, it's probably not accurate, but it's at least convenient. Um, the um, uh, there's been some. Uh, some interesting, I think, opinion about whether because of that we're actually leading to harm because people think, oh, my goodness, I drank, you know, three drinks right before, right after I conceived and what's that going to do and make people sort of crazy. And I think there's, there is a legitimate counsel, there's a legitimate counseling to be done to say, you know, there, there may be a risk to this, but by no means is it guaranteed and you haven't, you know, damaged your baby for life because of that. Um, but I don't think, honestly, that we can realistically expect there's any benefit. Um, I'd be surprised if U.S. guidelines change in this regard, um, although, as I note, it, it, there's, um, it's likely that they will be at least slightly rewritten in Britain um, imminently. Right. Uh, Andrea, anybody else in the queue? We do have a follow-up from Janet Williams. Great. Janet? Hi, Sarah. I feel like it's an intimate conversation. That's okay. Um, 
but I wanted to, I mean, I am, uh, one of my interests in working on alcohol is, is, is women, you know, and especially with, you know, um, that women are adversely affected by alcohol use in ways that men aren't. And certainly you alluded, you, not alluded, you talked about certainly unwanted sexual, you know, sexual activity, violence, um, and that's certainly from, from high risk and not necessarily alcoholism drinking and certainly in, in younger populations, although we do see it certainly um, in, in women in their 40s and 50s. But I, so I'm concerned about women and, and why we can't, the connection with, you know, there was that huge million women study that looked at cancer and moderate drinking in women, but yet we still haven't been able to really get the message out there about its connection to breast cancer. And you have the American Cancer Society that refuses to talk about, you know, alcohol. And and i sort of tying that to, I've been look, I'm looking at Dr. Frank's study that, that um, a physician's habits influence how they counsel their patients. Now, her study was looking at physical activity, so it a doctor who wasn't physically active didn't counsel as much about that with his patients. And I'm wondering, you know, what can we do in terms of clinical practice and getting physicians involved in the community with issues, you know, with policy issues on alcohol consumption and price and promotion, but also what do you feel that there's sort of a barrier because physicians might feel uncomfortable talking about alcohol because it is sort of deemed this normal part of society and you've got an industry that spends billions of dollars convincing us of that. And I'm wondering what we can do to to help physicians. What messaging do you think we need to do? And I'm not suggesting that those physicians who are high-risk drinkers don't feel comfortable talking about it, but even I think, you know, that physicians who just drink moderately or, you know, have this barrier that feels they can't talk about this issue with their patients as comfortably. Can you sort of talk about that a little? I don't know if I articulated a question very well. Um, well, again, there's a few pieces built into that. <laughs> so let me try to, uh, to disentangle them just a little bit. Um, uh, so, yeah, the the old saw that I was taught in medical school was that uh, problem drinking was defined as one more drink than the doctor had. And so <laughs> I, I think there is something to that, that, you know, people who who drink regularly and perhaps more – are going to tend to view that as normative. Um, but that being said, I don't honestly think that, I mean, I think doctors and we I know how I was trained. I was trained quite a long time ago. I know how our Harvard Medical School students are trained now. And they get a lot of information about um, both the fact that, you know, alcohol is, um, isn't by itself a problem, but um, uh, what problem drinking is and, um, and sort of the range of of disorders from say problem drinking through um alcohol abuse and alcoholism the um uh so I don't think that's the hugest problem um to some degree there's a time problem I think that you know we have sort of a limited number of things we get to talk about and there's a lot of them and they keep getting added onto every day one of my partners Amy Ship just wrote a beautiful piece describing how we in in young women and men we should be talking about texting while driving well that's great except that that's one less minute to be spent on alcohol um so there's a I mean, there's a sort of competition for time. Um, uh, I do think I'd say specifically related to young women that I say I personally have relatively strong feelings about um, the specific uh, manufacture and marketing of alcoholic beverages to young women. And I, I think about the so-called alco pops, the you know, lemonades and other sweetened beverages, sweetened alcoholic beverages that are specifically um, 
specifically made palatable to younger tastes. Um, I have, you know, personally great concern about those, and and I think there's a larger policy issue to be dealt with there. I'm not sure that's a clinical talk to be had, but it's um, it's something of I, I think where where there's a clear issue. Um, let me briefly touch on the breast cancer issue. We studied this in, our, in patients in our practice. Um, we interviewed about um, 900 of them, and we found exactly what you're suggesting, which is that even amongst women, in fact, even amongst drinking women, about 10% indicated that, al- that, that uh, a drink a day would lead to a higher risk of breast cancer, 10%. Now, keep in mind, a higher percentage than that thought that that even that amount of drinking led to liver disease, which probably doesn't, and even more than and 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 more than 10% thought that alcohol consumption to that level caused heart disease, which it almost certainly doesn't. So, um, so the message about breast cancer has not gotten out and not gotten out well at all. I'm not quite sure how to fix that. Um, I have to say that without um, spending a lot of time on it, I don't think the Million Women study was a particularly strong way to, to solve that problem. Um, they sort of conflated a lot of types of cancer together. More than half of the cancers in that study were breast cancer because women were recruited for mammography units. And so um, while that study showed that alcohol consumption caused total cancer, what it really showed was that alcohol consumption caused breast cancer. Um, and we already knew that, and we've known that for 30 years. So um, I have some differences with how that study was, was spun. But at the end of the day, it shows what Virtually every other study of this topic has shown, which is that moderate drinking leads to uh, a uh, an increased risk of breast cancer. Um, and frankly, I don't know how to get that message out better. I wish I did, but certainly I convey it to to patients I speak to, and I you know I think to the degree to which we can keep telling physicians about it, hopefully they will um, as well. Last thing I would say is that part of the reason why there's been so much difficulty with this is that um, it's it's actually it's it's quite a difficult topic. Um, it turns out that alcohol consumption by itself is not a mutagen. It's not a classic carcinogen. And so um, while alcohol, certain cancers are clearly higher in drinkers, um, understanding why that is and how much is to be blamed on the alcohol itself and how alcohol might be doing it is not so straightforward. And so I think that's part of kind of what's where, where, where some of the uh, the hesitation has been. Um, but again, the association of alcohol consumption with breast cancer is I think every bit as strong as, say, the association with low risk of heart disease. What that means is that, A, we need to be telling people about it, um, but also, B, frankly, um, you know, kind of looking at the opposite side, um, we can't sort of say that there's a higher risk of breast cancer without also sort of saying there's a lower risk of heart disease, because the same studies have shown both. Um, so, it's, you know, it's clearly a difficult area. Um, but at the end of the day, young women, hard to come up with a good reason for them to be drinking. Really good conversation, and we're we're nearing the top of the hour, and uh, I think we could go on. There's lots of questions that I still have, and Ken, I really appreciate you being on the call with us today. My pleasure. Uh, I'd like to thank Dr. Mukamal for his participation on the call and for you for all your great questions that you brought to the call. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Again, our next call is August 18th. And the article is Incontinence in uh, Older Women with Dr. Patricia Goody. And that appeared in the June 2nd, 2010 issue of JAMA. Sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thanks to all of you for being part of Author in the Room today, and good day. Again, ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude today's conference. We thank you for your participation.